Well, I think Luke's ready, so uh, let's get going. Anyone care to open us in a word of prayer? I will. Go ahead. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Continue to guide discussion. Help us more in creation. Thoughtful. Help us understand how help. Amen. Amen. We're going to look tonight at same issue we were talking about last week. We're talking about the Genesis flood versus what's called a historical geology. And I've said several times that we, as believers, don't have a major conflict with geology overall, but we do have a problem with the interpretation of earth history as presented by a branch of geology called historical geology. So we're going to focus on that. I'm going to give you an alternative interpretation of the same data. We're not looking at different data. We're looking at the same data the geologist looks at. He interprets it one way, and I believe there's a better interpretation from a different perspective. So last time, we focused on the scriptural evidence, and the essence of what we said, true or false, there's plenty of biblical evidence to hold to a local flood. True or false? False. In fact, you have to really twist Scripture, twist the words. You have to minimize a lot of passages, a lot of words like the Hebrew word kol, which is all, or sometimes translated every. So there's really no support biblically for a local flood. In fact, everything points in the direction of a universal, or what we would call also a worldwide flood. So if the Bible teaches that, and the Bible is clear, in spite of the majority of the believers and the church that believe in a local flood, in spite of that, we would hold to that and we look to science to see if that confirms it. And the reason the church holds to a local flood is they're intimidated by historical geology. And historical geologists basically say that there's no evidence for a Genesis flood. And what I want to demonstrate tonight is that there's overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. It's a difference in interpreting the same data. And I've got far more slides that we're going to be able to look at, so some of them will go real fast, and if I have to at the end, I'll skip a few of them, because I want to get to some real powerful evidence at the end. In fact, uh, Dennis was alluding to that a couple of weeks ago, evidence that Mount St. Helens gives us. So we'll do that at the end. So tonight, we're going to take a look at the scientific evidence. What does the scientific evidence say? And I believe that we don't need to argue with a historical geologist, so I never argue. I just explain why I'm right. Okay? The basic difference is when we're talking about the destructive power of water, in a simple way of thinking about it, the difference is whether you have a little bit of water over lots of time, it can create the same physical phenomenon as what you might have if you have lots of water over a short period of time. You can end up with the same kind of a canyon or same kind of effect from... uh, just the difference in the quantity and the intensity of the flowing waters. So we're interpreting the data from the latter perspective 
The historical geologist interprets the data from uh, the top perspective. Now, if you look at the flood and the details of the text, what I've got on your outline sheet, we can divide the Genesis flood into stages. The first stage would be, obviously, the initial stage. I call it the cause of the flood, which we discussed last time, and I'll review real quickly today. So we have flood stages. We'll look at the cause of the flood. There's also a stage where the waters are rising, increasing and increasing is what the text tells us. And then you have receding of waters. And these are over, from the biblical text, a long period of time. And you would expect that such a flood would leave evidence behind it. And that's what I want to demonstrate to you. So we looked at last time, some things that caused the flood were probably tectonic movements at a very rapid rate, not at the rate that we experience today. Tectonic plates, in other words, entire continents sometimes, or plates that may, there might be more than one in a continent, are slowly adjusting and moving. And when they move just millimeters, what do you experience? An earthquake. But I believe that there were massive tectonic effects, I showed you, show it to you again, that probably began the Genesis flood. We also looked at uh, chapter 7 in the book of Genesis, verse 11. It speaks of these fountains of the deep doing certain things, and we interpreted that from a different perspective based on a flood model by a man who used to live in Albuquerque. In fact, he got a degree from UNM, a geophysicist by the name of John Baumgartner. So he's got a lot of background, PhD in geophysics. He came up with a flood model. He's a, obviously a Christian that fits the biblical text, and it also fits some observations that he was aware of. So we talked about those last time. We also see that that Verse also refers to a 40-day rainstorm, but that's not the entire flood. That's just the rainstorm portion that caused a lot of rain over, obviously, a lot of land masses. But there were other things that caused the flood as well. And we mentioned last time, from the scientific perspective, there's actually physical evidence for tectonic movements, and uh, great disturbances, and perhaps a reference of the fountains of the deep may be associated with something that you can actually observe. So we talked about the Mid-Atlantic Ridge last time to explain the new model. Now, when John, John Baumgartner put together his model, it was a finite element computer program that was so detailed and so massive that there was not a computer virtually anywhere that could run it. So what he had to do, and Los Alamos had probably the most powerful computer at the time, he had to work late at night when there was nobody there, otherwise he'd shut down everything else that everybody else was trying to do. So he would work late at night, run his computer program, and a lot of times the computer program reaches capacity even. I think he used a Cray or something, I don't remember what he used, but one of the most powerful computers. And he developed this flood model from that theoretical idea that he came up with. 
And the physical evidence that you can see on the Earth, we looked at last time, what's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. If you take all of the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, you have a mountain range. And if you look at it carefully and understand it geophysically, you realize that it was formed by volcanic action, and it goes from pole to pole, from North Pole to South Pole. It's kind of like a zipper. And perhaps, according to Baumgartner's model, uh, we have some plates that are separating, and in that separating and subducting into the mantle, you would have material that will come from, from the mantle up and produce these volcanic mountains, basically. It's a range of mount, uh, volcanic mountains. If you cut a slice across, it would look something like this, where you have magma or lava coming to the not to the surface of the water, but at least in contact with water. And when you would have that, you would have massive amounts of water rapidly evaporating in contact with that very hot magma. And it would produce effects such as this. You'd have material coming up, and obviously since it's fluid, it would spread out, but it uh, should, should show it arched. This is Baumgartner's drawing, so I didn't tamper with it sacred. <laughs> uh, just kidding you. But you'd have displacement of other parts, and what, what subduction is, is basically land masses going back into the mantle, and in some cases you might have portions of continents doing the same thing, and now you're producing new material, and this would not only produce tsunami waves, but it would produce a tremendous amount of steam, and that might be the phrase, the uh, fountains of the deep, if not even just the volcanic action itself or a combination of the two, okay? And you have this tremendous amount of steam that would supersaturate the atmosphere and produce a rainstorm of 40 days and 40 nights. Now, climatologists will tell you that today the conditions in climatology are such that you could not have, it's impossible to have a rainstorm that long because you need a constant generating of material to go into the clouds in order to form a rainstorm. But if you do have a continuous stream of vapor, if you will, into the atmosphere, then you could have a 40-day and 40-night rainstorm. And this is essentially, in simple forms, the model that he came up with. So you have intense rain, and you have movements of continents. In fact, probably the creation of the continents more or less as they occur today. So the pre-flood world was probably radically different from the world in which we live in today. So that's the causes of the, of the flood. We looked at that last time. Now, this steam that's coming up and rain and tsunamis and movement of plates, land masses, going to produce an increasing amount of water that will flood the continents and we can call that an inundation stage where the waters are rising, and that's what the text tells us. And in that stage, you have the, the text says the waters prevailed more and more. The idea there is they're increasing, and you would have some tsunami actions, and you might have waters that are flowing that might be even a mile deep, if not even more than that. These are just some... Ideas. These are not small waves. These are huge things. Now, if you're on an ark, particularly of the design that is described in the book of Genesis, 
you would be immune to all of this. You probably would not even sense what's going on underneath deep, under the oceans, and certainly the tsunamis. Out in the ocean, tsunamis don't have much effect on vessels. Where you have an effect is when the tsunami hits the landmass. So basically, Noah and the family would not be affected or feel little effects of that. And you'd have massive erosion, massive erosion. And there's evidence of this. I'll talk about that later on. But to give you an idea of what you would have here, you would have large quantities of water at great depths, maybe even more than one mile deep of water going across a continent. And what it does is it rips up material. And it would rip up material as large as a house, boulders that large, It would rip up entire forests. It would rip up everything in its path, mix it all up, transport it, and in some cases thousands of miles even, across these land masses. And then you would have, as the floodwaters slow down and begin to recede, you'd have the depositing of all that material producing these many, many layers that you can observe today. So that's the model, that's the flood model, And that's the interpretation of the geological column, which in some places is more than a mile deep. And you can see a large portion of it in the Grand Canyon. We'll look at that. Luke, you got a question or a comment? Um, Plants reproduce through seeds. So seeds would float. Seeds would be on the debris that would also float. Logs and other debris that would float. And also plants can reproduce just from, a lot of plants reproduce. If you just stick the branch in the ground, it'll grow roots. So there's a lot of ways that uh, the plants would uh, reproduce. Noah didn't have to plant anything, just the natural forces of nature would have uh, produced. But that's an excellent question. Okay, so that's something of the model, of the flood model. So we have waters prevailing and massive erosion, and from that that would produce what's called the geological column. And at the end of that, you'd have what's called sedimentation. In other words, the layering that would be deposited as the water slowed down, the heavy materials generally would sink to the lower levels and more finer materials towards the top. And in general, you see something of that. But you'd have also a lot of different hydrodynamic forces You'd have currents, you'd have different movements, movements in different directions. So you'll have a lot of mixing as well. And that's what you find in the geological column, sedimentation. And this is just a simple drawing of the what's called the geological column. It's theoretical. This is what the historical geologist uses. This is his reconstruction of Earth history. And you can observe different layers all over the Earth. In fact, these occur all over the Earth, not all of them in one place necessarily. In fact, nowhere on the face of the Earth do you have all of those. I can't remember 16 of them. Nowhere on the face of the Earth do you have all of them together. So it's theoretical. Now, they don't tell you that. And in some places you'll have a lot of them missing, and in some places you might even have inversion where you have some out of sequence in some places on the earth. 
In fact, there's a lot of problems with this, and let me briefly explain a little bit more. So each of these levels, for example, you probably are familiar with the Jurassic, because you all went to the movie, right? (laughs) Jurassic Park. According to the historical geologists, it took 45 million years to form based on present processes. That's uniformitarianism. So each of these are millions of years representing what it would have taken for each of those layers to form. That's where they come up with millions and millions of years of Earth history. Now, there's a very important line here that we'll talk about later, the the line dividing the Cambrian and the Precambrian. mentioned that briefly last time. We'll camp on that this time. And they use evolution. They say you can see evolution in the rocks. In fact, they date the rocks according to the fossils that are contained in the rocks. And they calibrate even radiometric dating to the geological column because radiometric dating doesn't work. Uh, I've heard that they, not only do they date the column by the bones, but the bones by the column. Yep, circular raising. Circular raising? Yes, absolutely. So that's the geological column. There's a few problems with it. First of all, it's theoretical, as I've just noted, and... That Wood Merapi uh, also did some study of the geological column, and the numbers I'm giving you here are from another book that he wrote, and he combined all of these, uh, I think into one or maybe a couple, and then left all of the others alone, came up with 10 categories, so he put six of them together, I think there's 16 there, I don't know, somebody count them while we're talking here, and From the 10 categories with the six combined up there, he says that less than 1% of the earth will you have all 10. And nowhere on the earth do you have all 16. All right, so less than 1%. In fact, here's a world map that gives you that 1%. In other words, he is showing on this map in white where, where you have... All 10 of them represented. Not all 16, but just all 10. It's less than 1%. Can you find them? Off of of Australia. There's a few there in the Himalayas. Small little piece in Poland. Small piece in Cuba. Just to give you an idea, everywhere else, you have a lot of them missing. All right? And that's with Merapi. That was the name we wanted to spell. That was the name that we wanted to spell. There you go. Mm -hmm. And it's on the bibliography. It's 10 pages. Oh, my goodness. So Shannon's going to email it to you. All right. Well, I've got a little commentary on them as well. So, all right. Less than 1% you find everywhere on Earth. So basically what they're doing is combining the different layers into one chart, and it comes out nice and neat. There's some other problems. They assume evolution. We talked about that, which if evolution is a bad theory, then the foundation of the geological column is faulty as well. And 66% of the land masses, you have, let's see, five are missing, five or more are missing. You, uh, oh, more layers. Yeah, layers. Mm-hmm. This map represents just that Cambrian layer, and it's in white again, so you have the dark, it's missing. 
this is Wood Merapi again, the same book. So you can see uh, much of the United States. You have a Cambrian, but hardly any of Africa, half of South America, bits and pieces of Asia, Russia, Europe, where that lower layer, that Cambrian layer, this is right out of his book. So Does that mean that uh, the dark, the darker shades... It's absent. That was land that was formed during the flood by those processes flame? Well, I'd say all of it's formed. The point I'm making is you don't have all these layers all over the earth, okay? Which means, how do you explain that from, from the historical geologist? Does that mean that there was nothing that existed in that time frame? Or, you know, how do you explain it? I'm not trying to figure out where, if it was a local flood, like they say, where would it be on there? And I think it's an area where there's no Cambrian. And if that was the origin of mm-hmm. the local flood, it should be the most, and there's none. Yeah. So would you point out again, I'm busy talking. You're too busy talking. talking right so now. that would be... Mesopotamia. Mes- okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's lots of problems, and there's others as well. What else do I have on the slide there? Some of them are out of order. How does that happen? How do you have them out of order? And there's other problems as well. They assume that the strata are ordered by the fossils, and they assume evolution, so they see in the data successions of life forms. There's different ways of looking at that same data. They assume, we mentioned, uniformitarianism. In other words, the processes of sedimentation you can measure today, they project back. And that is an unproven, in fact, an unprovable assumption. And they reject the idea of catastrophism. That's an alternative view of looking at the geological column. We would be catastrophists, and we would believe in one major catastrophe with many associated catastrophes with it. And they also classify... Not only do they order, there's the circular reasoning, they order the strata by the fossils, and then they classify them by the fossils. These are the basic assumptions. And I've shown this chart several times. So basically, they're coming from an evolutionary perspective. That's their presupposition, uniformitarianism as well. They're looking at the data. In this case, it is geological strata, fossil data. And because they're coming from that perspective, what they see in the data, they conclude, supports their assumptions. So they see long ages, and they see an evolutionary layout. We come from a different perspective. We have added data. In addition to the physical data, we have revelation that interprets the data for us. And if that revelation, Genesis 6 through 9, tells us that there was a universal flood, we believe in inspiration and inerrancy, now we have something to interpret the data. And we have a catastrophe that explains the same data. So we're looking at the same data with additional information. And we come to the conclusion that the flood was universal, and we come to the conclusion that the evidence points to a universal flood. Make sense? And another picture of the geological column with more color to it. Okay? So, let's look at some of the evidence. And on your outline sheet here we have under sedimentation. I'm going to look at these five categories of evidence here. And some of them I'll go through quickly because I want to spend some time towards the end there. 
The second line of evidence of the Genesis flood is not only that uh, mid-Atlantic ridge that you can observe and geologists don't contest. They don't contest that it was formed by volcanic action. It's there. So, But that's evidence that points to that flood model that we talked about. But also, there are fossils all over the world. There are fossils on most mountaintops. You can find fossils on top of Sandia Crest. In fact, if you take a trip to Mount Everest, any volunteers? You will find fossils on top of Mount Everest. Almost virtually every mountain has fossils. In Texas, we had friends that would go to creek beds. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in the middle of In Texas, Texas yeah, exactly. There are fossils everywhere on the planet. Okay, here's another pop quiz. Are fossils formed today? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It takes special conditions to form a fossil. It's possible for them to form today, but in general, what happens to a creature that dies? Here's a fossil. What happens to a creature that dies? Does it fossilize? Hmm? That's one thing. Another thing, predators eat it up and leave the bones, and bones are usually scattered, nice and uniform like you find in a fossil. Or, uh, and also, not or, and or, it decomposes. And if you leave it long enough, even the bones will decompose. So in general, fossils are not formed today. So I'll give you a D on that quiz. (laughs) Fossil can be formed, but it takes catastrophic events. You have to seal it off from the decaying process and keep it away from predators in order for a fossil to form. All right? I'm going to show you a drawing here. That when you talked about um, the fountains and the uh, in the ridge and the the eruption of the volcanoes, the amount of heat. Would, no, no. That, that was not what created fossils, okay. okay? This is normal death. Fish dies, and what happens? Other fish eat it. And by the way, most fish, when they die, they'll float to the surface. They don't go to the bottom and are not covered. And what remains are just little scattered pieces, and they generally decompose. That's generally what happens with death. They don't fossilize in general. And this is what the what is required a fish to go to the bottom, be covered, and it can't be slow because it'll decompose. And in fact, it'll float, and then maybe the bones might be preserved. But that doesn't happen. An evolutionist by the name of Miller, W.M. Miller, says comparatively few remains of organisms now inhabiting the earth are being deposited under conditions favorable for their preservation as fossils. All right? So, in general, fossils aren't formed today. He goes on, It is nevertheless remarkable that so vast a number of fossils are embedded in the rocks. How do you explain it? If fossils are formed by catastrophic means, that means every one of those layers were probably formed not over long periods of time by wind deposition, but probably under catastrophic flood conditions, either of multiple floods or perhaps a massive flood that deposited all the layers. See how the evidence points more so for a flood rather than long periods of time, okay? 
This is an evolutionist, accurate statement, paleontologist. So fossils, this is what, how they're formed, using AIG's cartoons here. Little fish, very happy, swimming along. All of a sudden, you have material that is going to cover that fish. He's encased, so predators don't eat it, and it preserved so that it does not decay, and then you have the fossilization process. And there are different things that form fossils. Sometimes it's a chemical reaction, and there are other ways of forming fossils as well. So that's how fossils are formed. You can have them formed by freezing, or just their hard parts, or just the carbon alone is, is what remains, or sometimes the entire original form. And there are fossilized jellyfish, very soft fossilized jellyfish. How do you do that? And that would be in the original form. Petrification, that's another way of formation. And even uh, animal tracks can be preserved. You could consider them fossilized. Lamberts, another paleontologist, almost all of the fossils, by their very manner of perfect preservation, clearly show a sudden burial. Sudden burial. This is the evolutionists themselves. These are the paleontologists themselves. They recognize that. So just the existence of fossils and the fact that you find them all over the world tells us that catastrophic conditions took place all over the world, and that argues for the possibility of a worldwide flood. There are an unusual number of what are called, not just fossils, but fossil graveyards. What do we mean by a fossil graveyard? There's evidence of a large number of living creatures that were all buried together. And they didn't just gather together and let's say, let's go die together. Something gathered them together and preserved them and fossilized them at the same time. In other words, in the same event. And these also are all over the world. There's some in Siberia, probably the best known are the mammoths. But there's not only mammoths, there's several other creatures. There's plant life that was all buried and fossilized together. Some of it frozen. So Siberia, there's Alaska, Germany, and I'm just giving you a few of these just to show you that they occur all over the world. Speaking of these accumulating of creatures and plant life in one place and burying them together. A Genesis flood, like we said, would rip up sometimes entire forests with all of the animals contained and sometimes move them, transport them, bury them all together in one place and you find these all over the world. So Argentina, here in the United States, Wyoming, Utah, Dinosaur National Monument, where many dinosaurs are buried together in a dinosaur graveyard. Many of them together. Here's an example of one in a museum there, and pretty complete in terms of its bone structure. Where's the dinosaur in the country? That's in Utah. So here we go again. Colorado, California... Um, is there a way that they've actually been able to prove? Because, okay, I mean, and I believe you completely, I'm just asking, that all these places where everything was fossilized, fossilized happened at the exact, you know, I mean, precisely in the same range of time, within, you know, yeah, six months or whatever, because they always act like they can prove anything. Well, see, know, they they date 
those layers based on that assumption that those layers were laid down over a million years. That's why they separate them. But if there was one flood that's described in the book of Genesis, then all of this would have been happening within a matter of months. So, the, I mean, the, our side... <laughs> our side... They can't specifically prove that all mm-hmm. this happened around the same... So, I no. mean, frankly, a lot of stuff can't really be proved. True. But they're saying it can Yeah, the fossils don't have little tags on them, yeah. 2,000 or whatever. Well, just, just like you always hear... There was really this theory that, you know, at one time the ocean covered. That's the evolutionary theory. Well, they say that because they have to have an explanation for, yeah. Not because, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it makes more sense that, yeah, if there was a massive flood, yeah, the ocean covered her. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and we would agree with that, but we're talking about a huge flood. Don't the fossils have different layers? The bone would be up and down and the different layers going across it. You're describing what's on the screen there. Oh, okay. You're describing a polystrate fossil. Did you hear her explanation? A fossil, in fact, you can figure out from the word poly, many, straight, strata, many strata. So fossils that go through many strata. Got that? These are interesting. How do you explain this over millions of years? Let me show you some photographs. We'll go through these quickly. Here's a polystrate fossil. It's a tree. See the tree there? And you can't quite tell from the slide. It's a little dark there. But here's a layer. Here's a layer one meter deep. Then you have a different layer. And there's probably a different layer from here to here. So you have at least one, two, three, four, maybe five, maybe six, maybe more because you don't have the top. Several layers there. Is that tree that many millions of years old? And did it survive as it was being covered by sediment? This is a real dilemma. You might say, well, that only occurs in Germany. I mean, you find one specimen, how you can't make a big case out of that. Well, there are polystrate fossils all over the world as well. Here's a sketch of polystrate fossils from France. Here's photograph of a polystrate fossil in Tennessee. This could be a coal seam. This could be another layer, and then there's layers above. And by the way, this is John Baumgartner about 90 years ago, more like 30, where he got the, found, well, he didn't find it, but he was taken to this specimen, another polystrate fossil. Point I'm making here, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, France, Germany, they're not isolated. You can find these all over the world. In fact, most dinosaurs, because they're so large, most of them are polystrate fossils because they're so huge. And even one bone will go through many strata. So how do you explain that over the millions of years for each different layer? It points more to one event that laid down all of those layers and did that all in a short period of time before that dinosaur could decompose. Make sense? This is why we have overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. Luke? Sawyer's Navy's Atlantis, Dinosaur, and If they were consistent, that's the conclusion <laughs> they'd have to draw. Exactly. You, you've pointed out to the flaw in their thinking. You must be a homeschooler. <laughs> no? <laughs> you have good parents. <laughs> He's a scientist, huh? Good. So most dinosaurs are polystrate fossils. 
there you go. There's a big bone. It's probably, now this doesn't show the different layers because they've already uncovered it, but you can imagine that a bone that size might go through more than one layer. So we have fossils in general. They're all over the world, even on mountaintops. Fossil graveyards, where you have the accumulation of many that were covered at the same time in the same place. Polystrate fossils that go through many layers. You also, how do you explain coal and oil? There's an evolutionary explanation, but it has lots and lots of problems. What is coal, first of all? Garbage. It's carbonized plant material, carbonized plant material. It's fossilized plants. And in some cases, you can actually even see the imprints of leaves and that sort of thing. Oil is what? Generally fossilized animal material. Coal and oil. How do you get seams, for example, like this one? Here's a very deep seam. To give you perspective, these tracks are about eight feet tall. So you have a huge seam. That's a huge machine there. And I don't know the depth of that, but that's, I don't know, 80, 90 feet. And this goes for miles and miles. How do you accumulate all that material in one place? That's why a flood would rip up entire forests, transport it, cover it, carbonize it into coal. Similarly, there's oil deposits all over the world, just as there's coal deposits all over the world. Fields that are located in places that are not typically those kinds of forests. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, all over the world. Mm -hmm. The conclusion, this is Baumgartner. Most coal was formed from plant material transported and buried by marine flood waters rather than from plants which accumulated in place in swamps or peat bogs. That's the evolutionary explanation, the latter part there. The evidence points, and he supplies lots of little bits and pieces of evidence for example, you have alignment of the material. You know, how do you get alignment if it's just all random peat moss, okay? So there's the conclusion. There's sedimentation. Sedimentation. I showed you this chart, and we're going to focus on this third part of it. We talked about the ripping up of material, transporting it, and then now it's deposited. So all of those layers, we are saying all the way down to a certain level were laid down by the Genesis Flood. That's why I say overwhelming evidence, because the virtually the entire geological column is evidence of a Genesis Flood. Because you have all that death encompassed, all those fossils which are in every one of those layers, catastrophic conditions, so you have all that evidence for a Genesis Flood. So let's take a look at this redepositing. And a good place to be able to observe this is the Grand Canyon. And at the Grand Canyon, you can see all the layers. And it's over a mile deep from the top to the bottom. So you have all of these layering. And I want to give you some evidence from the Grand Canyon. And I specifically wanted to go there, so I went in order to get some of these photographs, almost all of them. See the layering? In other words, all of this is continuous layer. Uh, they call this white, you see that white layer? They call it the bathtub ring of the Grand Canyon. Same material. That's one layer. Mm, 80, in some places, 100 feet thick. Same material. Somewhat uniform material. 
and it goes throughout the canyon and beyond. In fact, many hundreds of miles, actually. And all of that is layering. By definition, what is sedimentary rock? You can figure it out. Before Luke gives the answer, what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what did you say? All sedimentary rock has to go through uh, water or flood. Well, it's sedimentary. In other words, it is accumulated as a result of either water or wind. And that's what Luke was going to say, right? No. Okay. <laughs> what were you going to say? All of No, no. A brother over here defined it. Sedimentary rock was either produced as a result of wind or water action, flood action. We're arguing that it was all formed by water action not wind. So you see the layering, and by the way, you can't tell from this slide, but I'll point it out later. The sedimentary rock goes only to a certain level, okay? And just to give you a perspective, as much as a mile deep, as much as 18 miles across from the north, what do they call it, north, uh, north rim and south rim, over 277 miles long, where you can see all of those layering somewhat continuous that whole distance. So these are the same, uh, those layers were laid down under the same basic conditions is what we're arguing there. So here's the evidence. You have massive blankets. Each of these layers you could look at as, as a blanket that covers thousands of square miles. And here's a sketch of the Grand Canyon this part here, this is the Grand Canyon here, and it's out of scale, but you can see layering that goes all the way outside of Arizona into Utah and even beyond Bryce Canyon, which is, what is that, Utah? So you have all this layering. All of that is sedimentary rock. Up to this layer, they call it the Tapeats layer, that's a Cambrian layer. They call it Tapeats because it's a formation and they name it after that formation, but that is a Cambrian layer. On the uh, geological column, it's a Cambrian layer. Everything from that, including the Cambrian, is sedimentary rock. And what we would argue is that all of that was deposited by the Genesis Flood. So what we have in the boundary between the Cambrian and Precambrian is the line that the Genesis Flood destroyed, ripped up, transported, and redeposited. And everything below that is pre-flood. In fact, you might even say creation rock. And it's radically different. It is not sedimentary rock. It's igneous rock. It's volcanic. It's uh, mantle rock. But from the Cambrian up, it's sedimentary rock. And it's a sharp line. Does the create unconformity? <clears throat> exactly. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Here's an example of one formation, Shiny Rump. It's above the Grand Canyon, and it's well graded, as, you, as I'll show you in another photograph. point to notice is in the U.S., 125,000 square miles in the United States alone. And it shows up in other areas of the world as well. And here's a piece of that Rock, well-graded, almost like concrete. Okay? This is a different formation. This is the Morrison formation. And you have all of these different layers, and you can see this one in the Grand Canyon, because the Grand Canyon's here, so it covers much of 
the Rocky Mountain area. And this is true of all of them. In fact, I'm going to show you a slide of the Cambrian layer in a moment. So we can look at this to Pete's layer, and that's how it looks all over the United States. So if you would drill down about a mile here in Albuquerque, you would reach that Cambrian layer. And below that Cambrian layer, you would have basement rock, essentially. So it covers most of the United States, as you can see, thousands of miles. So you have these huge blankets with all the same material. Something gigantic laid down all that material in that layer over this large extent. And that's true of all of those layers. And that's true all over the world. Interesting? How do you know that? Oh, geologists know all this stuff. They do drilling, and they can catalog it. Does Cambrian have a meaning or a reference? Mm, I I, I don't know. Yeah, you'll have to look it up. So uh, in these big canyons, like the Grand Canyon, you have all these... So what's the explanation for the void where the canyon is? I mean, why the layers do not extend? We'll get to that. So that's a good question. Do you ever hear that? There's two phenomena that are going on here. I believe that the redepositing of those layers was a result of the Genesis flood. And later on, I'm going to show you, I'll answer your question since you asked it now, other effects of the Genesis flood after the depositing took place relatively close to the Genesis flood that carved out not just the Grand Canyon, but produced a lot of surface effects that you can view all over the world. And I'll give you some examples of those as well. These are after effects of the Genesis flood. There's lots of after effects and there's lots of evidence that you can observe. In fact, everything that you virtually see on the face of the earth was produced by the Genesis flood. Sandia Mountains here, that is as a result of after effects of the Genesis flood and the layering. You can see the layering on this east side. That layering was as a result of laying down and depositing material by the Genesis flood. Luke, you have another question. Um, there's a lot of after effects of the Genesis flood. What would you say like... Um, After effect, the carving out of canyons like the Grand Canyon, the Ice Age, we'll talk about it if we have time. Okay. So you have massive blankets. This is interesting. You have what geologists call folding. And I'll show you with a photograph. See how this is, this rock layer is kind of folded up this way. How do you uh, produce that over millions of years? because the geologist will tell you that that folding took place when that material was what they call plastic. In other words, it was soft. It shows evidence that it was soft. In other words, what produced that? It wasn't after it was laid down millions of years, and then it was twisted. (laughs) Here's a more vivid photo. You can see how this even dips down and goes back up. See that folding there? And... This is pretty common. You can see this at the Grand Canyon and other places as well. That's evidence of after effects of the Genesis flood. You have movements after the Genesis flood. So you have folding, you have cross-bedding. In other words, the laying down of the sandy material, particularly sandy material. Sand dunes are produced on the surface. You can go to what's the place in Colorado, southern Colorado. You see these sand dunes. Hmm? Yeah, the Great Dunes. They accumulate at a certain angle on the surface. 
they accumulate at a different angle underwater, but you have the same type of effects. In other words, the producing of sand dunes, and that's what's called cross-bedding. And if you look at the cross-bedding, see the cross-bedding here? That is at the angle that is formed underwater, not on the surface. And the Coconino sandstone, that's that bathtub ring, the Coconino sandstone. The little part where This part, see the cross-bedding? like a slant. And that's John Baumgartner 30 years ago as well. I can't quite make it out, but you can, in some places, you can see the angling that's cross-bedding. That's a result of water action producing of the material in dunes underwater. And that's that Coconino sandstone. That's the bathroom. That's why I pointed out that bathtub. Okay, so you have these amphitheaters. And how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Good. You saw all this, right? You know all this stuff already, right? These carved out, what they call amphitheaters, how did they come about? The evolutionist says by slow erosion, millions of years, long periods of time. Well, there's a few problems. The problem is, is the, the material that would have been eroded out, it's not there. It's not at the bottom. Where is that material? A large flood would be an explanation, a better explanation and you can observe this in some river banks where the water will produce these what are called eddies, where you have rapidly moving water that erodes the bank, erodes it out, and then as it's eroded out, the material is carried away. So that would explain these amphitheaters probably produced by rushing waters through that canyon, and the material is, is taken away rather than left on the bottom. Evidence for a Genesis flood or a massive flood, at least at that time. Now, this is not the, the flood immediate, but the after effects. And sharp boundaries. The evolutionist can't explain these because if... How do you have a sharp boundary between layers? This is that Coconino sandstone, and you have Hermit Shale below. But it's almost a knife edge. It's flat. What radically changed almost overnight? You had something radical happen. Otherwise, you'd have erosion, just natural rainstorms and natural wind and etc. But you have these sharp edges, which is more conducive for rapid burial and a Genesis flood. So there's the sharp edge. Uh, here it is again from a different perspective. And by the way, this is softer material. There it is up close. See how sharp that edge is? If that was produced, the two layers were produced over millions of years, then you have this radical change in material, but you have no erosion between them. And that's consistent through all the layers, but it's very evident between these because one's a little reddish and the other one's a little whitish. You can see it very clearly. But you see that throughout the Grand Canyon. So you have Hermit Shale, Coconino Sandstone, rapid burial of... <coughs> Rapid formation, rapid burial of fossils, polystrate fossils, sandstones deposited under <coughs> water, cross-bedding, sharp boundaries. You see all of that. Surface markings. In that Coconino sandstone, you have fossilized reptile footprints in the Coconino sandstone. You can see some of them. How did that get there? How were they preserved? I mean, you can, after a flood, a local flood, and your cat walks across some sediment... How long is it going to last? Unless there's another layer that's laid immediately and seals it. 
And that seems to be what, what happened between the layers. Tracks of several reptile species, and this is just off the hermit trail that all of you. And that's also something that you Yes. Hear. Well, all those layers, we would say, are... At that time, they would species really In some cases, exactly. Very good, Shannon. And then the last one here is the great unconformity. The boundary between this Tapete and or Cambrian layer and this uh, Precambrian or what we would call basement rock, that boundary between the two, geologists call the Great Unconformity. And they call it that because it's a radical change from one to the other, change from sedimentary rock to basement rock, whereas everything above is all sedimentary rock. Well, there's some volcanic in some places, but that's usually a very minor part but you have a radical change between the two. That's why this sketch so shows those lava veins, if you will. And in the Grand Canyon, it's very visible. The arrows are pointing to the Great Unconformity. In other words, everything below that is Precambrian. Everything above is sedimentary rock, from the Cambrian to the top. And it runs throughout, and it's very distinct. If you've gone down to the bottom, you can see it. See the difference? See how this rock almost is random in its formation and orientation, and everything above it is sedimentary. You can visually see it. It's pretty evident. So basement rock, granites, schist, and above it, sedimentary, different kinds, limestone, sandstone, shales, but it's all sedimentary. In other words, laid down either by wind and or, and preferably from our perspective, the Genesis Flood. There's just another shot of it. See the jaggedness of this? That's igneous. Everything above is cemetery. And didn't you call Pre-Cambrian level creation rock? Yep. We could call, like we could call it creation rock. Mm-hmm. If you go down to the river, you can see it because it's very evident in some places. You're saying that that rock is... Not as hard. The, the sedimentary, well, sedimentary rocks got different different hardnesses, but that below is volcanic rock, if you will, or mantle rock. It's basement rock, very clearly. Geologists don't argue that point. So they just call it the Great Unconformity because they don't have a better better word. Yeah, we could call it the destruction line of the Genesis flood. But it's too long. We need to come up with a shorter <laughs> shorter name for it. And there it is again. Everything below is basement rock. You can see it in some places close to the surface in Wyoming. This is the, and they call it the Great Unconformity. I got this off the internet. This is a geological, this is just from a geological site. But notice sandstone, Cambrian. So it's all over. And in some places you can find it close to the surface even. They would say 2.9 billion years. They might say 2.9345 billion years, just to be more precise. Don't they explain, I mean, maybe not like in the Grand Canyon, but a lot of the stuff, especially like where the sharp edges are, don't they just explain a lot of that? They ignore, yeah, ignore a lot of it. But yeah, that would be one. But that's all, what you're talking about is surface. We're talking about stuff that's way below those sharp boundaries between the layers. Well, that's right. Yeah. Okay. 
So that's the inundation stage. Now let's talk about the formation of things like the Grand Canyon. This would be the recession of the waters, the waters receding. You would have mountain building. The present size of the mountains are post-flood formations, post-flood mountains. Some of them are still growing at a very slow rate. But during the time of the receding of the waters, you'd have more rapid movements of plates and uprising of, of layering and mountain building as well. I have a question. Does the Mid-Atlantic Ridge still grow? Is it still growing? Or? Yeah, you, you can have some volcanic action. I'm not exactly sure where. Some of the islands in the Atlantic are as a result of that and you have in the by the way in the Pacific you have the equivalent the ring of fire and you have the formation of sometimes islands in present time. The processes obviously have slowed down and we'll talk a little bit about that. Here's another evolutionist AJ Erdley, the cause of the deformation of the Earth's outer layers and the consequent building of mountains still effectively evades an explanation. They don't have an explanation. Evolution doesn't provide all of the answers. A Genesis flood gives us the interpretation. And you can find other quotes by geologists, geophysicists, that are from an evolutionary perspective. So we're looking at the recession stage, mountain building, a lot of volcanic eruptions. And you can see within the layers evidence of volcanic action. And obviously on the surface, even today, there's still active volcanoes right across the river. We have some that are hopefully not active. <laughs> Colombian Plateau, a thousand feet thick, 2,000 square miles. We're talking about huge things close to the Genesis flood. Huge eruptive event. There's about 500 active volcanoes today, about 1,500 extinct. So there were a lot of them that were active in the past, obviously. They're now extinct. Mount Vesuvius is a famous one where an entire culture was buried. You ought to visit that if you're ever in that area. That made fossils. It sure did. Hmm? It was catastrophic and it made fossils. It made fossils. Humans, <laughs> even. Yep, exactly. So you have it volcanic eruptions. Pardon me? It was catastrophic. Yep. You have massive erosion and you see some drastic evidences of this. In fact, if you study... This is a satellite photograph of the Grand Canyon. Can you see it here? This is the Grand Canyon. There's the Colorado River down there. It almost looks like it's up, but it's actually down. In other words, that's the Grand Canyon from satellite. There's what's called this Kaibab Plateau that geologists think at one time blocked waters because upstream there are ancient lakes. In fact, there's evidence. Here's that Kaibab up. Upwork. There's evidence of these huge lakes, Hopi Lake. The elevation at these points, about 5,800 elevation, which is higher than this. And all these others, Bernal Lake, etc. It's believed by flood geologists that as a result of movements, plate movements, volcanic action, earthquakes... Something caused a break and drained all of those. Those lakes don't exist today, but there's evidence that they exist in the past. That water was probably flood water that remained on the continent 
And as a result of all this movement and action post-flood, now all this water is released and carved out the Grand Canyon. Lots of water over a short period of time. Not millions of years of the Colorado River meandering through the Grand Canyon. So that's one of the after effects of the Genesis flood. But you have things like this. You have Devil's Tower in northeast Wyoming, 902 feet tall. This is probably the, uh, what do you call, the uh, interior of a volcano. That's volcanic. But something probably rapidly washed away everything around it, the softer material, and all it left was the hardened part of the volcano. It just sticks out. And by the way, this is rapidly uh, eroding today. Okay. Why is it so burning? Well, that's what I'm saying. Everything else was washed out, probably receding waters, waters that are receding from the flood. Washed everything and just left... It didn't even leave the, the cone of the volcano. It just left the hardened igneous rock. There's also Lake Missoula flood. It's believed to be the second biggest flood that has ever occurred. This is by flood geologists. The biggest flood is what? Genesis, Genesis flood. All right. And it's believed that there was a glacial lake, Lake Missoula, that doesn't exist today. But there's evidence that that lake rapidly washed out that other dark greenish area where it says the flood path, and it leaves scars on the face of the earth. If you visit that area, that looks like it was washed out. You have steep walls of canyons. That's what water will do, destructive waters. And it's called the Grand Coulee Scablands, 50 miles long, 1,000 feet deep. Closer to home... Anyone been to Rio Grande Gorge? Yeah. That was carved out probably as after effects of waters receding from the Genesis flood. 565 feet deep, 1,280 feet across. That's the span of the bridge. And from the center of the bridge is what it looks like. 595 feet down. Uh, my biology teacher jumped off. He was probably an evolutionist. <laughs> So massive erosion, and you find the, the phenomena like this. I just gave you a few examples. You can find this all over the world where it looks like something unusual happened in terms of eroding canyons and material. Royal Gorge, for example, another one. Ice Age, an ice age was probably formed as a result of the aftermath. I'll show you another slide here. Here's an evolutionist. The underlying cause of glaciation remains in doubt. At least 29 explanations have been advanced to account for widespread glaciation. Most of these had little chance of survival from the first. In other words, there was not enough evidence to support them. And then he goes on. But others enjoyed some degree of success until they were rendered untenable by subsequent accumulated information. The naturalist doesn't have an explanation for the Ice Age. In fact, they believe there are many or multiple Ice Ages. The Genesis Flood provides a rationale, and there's a creationist that is given, and this is from his little book, that the flood caused the Ice Age. If you have the volcanic action in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and the corresponding one in the Pacific, hot lava in contact with ocean waters from pole to pole, what's that going to do to the temperature of the water? It's going to increase, and it only has to be a few degrees, 
doesn't have to raise very high. And if you have warmer oceans, by the way, if you study the, all of the climatology stuff on this, the reason they don't know is because all of the models are kind of uh, counter-reactive. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, some of the things that they believe that caused it will tend to do almost the opposite. In other words, they don't produce a glacier or they don't produce an ice age. But if you have a warm ocean, you have more water vapor, more evaporation. You have more evaporation, what do you have? More snow, colder summers, and you add to that this volcanic action, you're going to have a lot of ash in the air that's going to shield the sun from warming up. So you're going to have a lot of accumulation as a result of all of this, and that's going to produce these glaciers and an ice age. And since the ice age, we've been having global warming. It's not so bad, right? Tell Al Gore that. So we have an explanation for the ice age. And since then, we've had stabilization where tectonic plates are moving less and less radically. Volcanoes are less and less. You don't have these massive changes in terms of erosion. You have just local small effects. So we're living in a very nice earth today, if you will, stabilization. Okay, let's spend the last few minutes here on recent catastrophes that give evidence. And this is real powerful evidence. Anybody know what that is? Mount St. Helens. Jot down that number, elevation 9,677. That's the above sea level. That's what Mount St. Helens looked like early 1980. Okay, you all know what happened. We Most of us lived through it, right? You didn't. <laughs> it's history for him. I was very young. You were very young. Let me remind you what happened. This is what the mountain looked like before. This is from a perspective uh, from of what's called Spirit Lake. There's a lake there. I'm going to show you kind of a a map of that whole area that shows where that is with respect to the mountain. That's what it looked like before. On May 17th, 1980, in fact, even before that, but this was photographed taken then, you see this bulge, kind of this huge pimple on the side of that mountain, and rumblings and earthquakes and smoke coming out of the top. And this guy better get out of there, because the very next day, this is what happened, May 18th, 1980, the mountain exploded and there was enough energy, they estimate, enough energy to produce one atomic bomb per second over the length of the eruption or the equivalent energy release of 30,000 atom bombs, Mount St. Helens. So it blew the side of the mountain. And by the way, I'm going to show you some other craters. This was relatively small in comparison to what has happened in past history. That's after. That's Mount St. Helens after the mountain exploded. Four, from the same location, photograph from the same location, after. And this is U.S. Geological Survey there, photograph. And a little cone in the middle, because <laughs> it's had subsequent, since 1980, subsequent eruptions. This is Spirit Lake. It's a little different after. Just to give you some information, what's the elevation now, afterwards? 8,364. 
as opposed to what? 9,677. Okay, the mountain exploded. The crater is about a mile across. They estimate 200 million cubic yards of material was displaced over a 250 square mile area that was damaged. Everything was destroyed. It looked like a moonscape. That it would have taken millions of years to do. They, yeah. Well, they also predicted that it would, it would take 100 years to restore it. And it's almost restored today. Is and, there any significance to the height of the mountain? Apparently, there's, we only get so high, and we don't get higher than that. Does that mean anything? Mm, I'm not sure that's even true. The only reason I pointed it out is to show you uh, the difference in elevation before and after. Well, I'm... You're, you're getting real excited again, I can tell. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I'm trying to say is there's the highest mountain in the world. Is what? Is what you call it? Not ever. It's, it's only... It's 12, I forget how many feet. But nothing is higher than that. Why? Is there a reason? Well, there has to be a higher, highest one, so... <laughs> Yeah, does that mean anything? Back to a proof that... No, not, not that I know of. Okay. Yeah. okay. So this is what... This, this is that lake. No. Did it kill everything? Yeah. It killed everything in the area. In fact, it looks like a moon state. This was very, very lush before. In fact, it was a beautiful place to go hiking, camping, lots of trails, well-known, not only by geologists, but... People that like to camp out and hunt and do all that after it. In fact, the coloring of that is a result of the surface full of logs and debris from wood. Oh, wood debris. They had ash all the way like, to Washington. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Volcanic ash. I mean, not just a little, mm-hmm. you know, dead. Yep. Here's the chronology of. The thing, you had earthquakes going on before and certainly afterwards. You have debris avalanche where material is taken from the mountain, avalanche down, and then then you have erosion, you have a steam explosion. That's what caused the mountain to explode. A giant water wave from the melting of snow and ice at the top. You have mud flows. You have what geologists call pyroclastic flows. This is a mixture of different debris. And you have what they call airfall tephra. In other words, the, the material was blasted up into the air, has to come down. So you have that falling, like boulders raining down and rocks and ash. That's what you were talking about, the ash that is blown many, many miles away. This is what it looks like from a satellite. I just got this off of Google Earth. Damage over a 10-mile area. Remember, this was a mile across. That's what it looked like in 2012. And I'm going to show you a sketch of this, but you want to watch this little canyon there. There's the sketch of it. So the red is that pyroclastic flow deposit. That's lava material, mud, snow, ice, all that stuff. Mud flow deposits in that canyon that filled that canyon up with Layering, blast deposits, that's the destroying of all the trees in that vicinity because it blasted to the north, and you have the debris avalanche over there deposits. Actually, this is the North Fork Fork Tool, so you have a lot of deposits there. Just to compare it, 
closer to home. Yeah, that's in Mexico. That's Los Alamos. Yes. Fourteen mile crater. Now this is before recorded history, and that's a whole crater. In fact, you can see the lava flow, and actually that Rio Grande Gorge. All of that is from this explosion, from the Los Alamos explosion. That's before recorded history. It's basically basalt over there, and you've been to Santa Fe, La Bajada. You can see all that lava. It's from here. Crater Lake, five miles across. So Mount St. Helens was relatively small. Yellowstone, a 30-mile crater. And there's the ash. Here's Mount St. Helens in comparison. This is that Crater Lake and these others. Mount St. Helens is relatively small. These others would be closer to the Genesis Flood. Okay, so we have erosion, sedimentation, not over millions of years, stratification, in other words, formation of rock layers, not just deposits of loose material. And here's an example. May 18, 1980, after the mountain exploded, all that material came down and deposited a layer. To give you perspective, there's a woman there. So that's that airfall debris. But that's a layer, that's rock. And then you have another layer here. This is rock, and you have laminations in there. And those don't represent little years, because all of that was laid down in five hours on June 12, 1980, just the next month, 25 feet of material. That is rock. If you went and took a geologist and... Asked him to evaluate the age of that. He said, well, let's see, 25 feet times whatever the rate is, X number of millions of years, five hours. And this is just a little tiny pimple on the face of the earth. Just imagine a Genesis flood depositing large amounts of material over vast areas, over entire continents. And then on 3-19-82, two years later, we have other eruptions and more deposits. Okay? That's why it's powerful evidence. So you have sedimentation, stratification, log deposition that's in that spirit lake. And there's some interesting phenomenon there. And some believe that possibly they're still, I think they're still researching. I haven't heard the results of that. They believe that the possibility of coal was formed. Because you have layering at the bottom of that spirit lake. There's spirit lake. And you have these tree trunks that... You have polystrate, possible polystrate fossils. So the petrified forest where you have trees standing up, you have the same effect in Spirit Lake. Some of them lay down. The reason they stand up is because you have more material here, and the water fills up, obviously, the, the base more. You have more water, so it's heavier, so it stands the tree up. So that's Spirit Lake. So you have... Coal, possibly, and we've got, what, 10 seconds left here? That's Mount St. Helens. As a result of some of the later effects, first of all, remember there were these layers that were deposited in that canyon, and then as a result, uh, here we have a thickness of these layers, thickness, an average thickness of 150 feet deep. In other words, if you drill down, to the bottom, it'd be about average of 150 feet. Maximum thickness in some places is 600 feet deep. This was as a result of the eruption. 
So you have the layering, like you would have like with the Genesis flood. And then interestingly, March 19, almost two years later, remember the eruption was 1980, so in 1982, you had the waters from Spirit Lake run down and wash out a canyon. That's why you can see that wall there that I showed you, the photograph of the layering. You can see that because that was a washed out, that was washed out by the waters from Spirit Lake, and it carved a canyon. In fact, this point right here, that little top of that little wall there, that is about right here. Oh, that only took No, no, it took one day. March 19th, two years later, carved out a canyon about 140th scale of the Grand Canyon form. Something happened in the, in the lake. Well, uh, eruptions and accumulation of more water and probably more of a rainy season then burst whatever was holding the water and it all came rushing so down. The was not entire. Dry, but... No, no, it wasn't dry. It just released a large quantity of water, enough to carve out a cat canyon. Okay? So what Mount St. Helens does, it's almost like God is saying, hey, I can show you what I can do in a very short period of time in just a little tiny pimple on the face of the earth. But we won't listen. No, we won't listen. (laughs) I did this on a grand worldwide scale and produced the same effects as you can observe in the geological column. And if I could do it on a small scale, why can't I do it worldwide? So that's your overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. Now next week, what I'd like to do is give you a scientific view of Genesis 1 from this perspective, from creation science perspective. Who wants to close in prayer? and Praise the Lord, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, Father, we just praise you for how big and powerful you are. Lord, we look at things and we think it takes millions of years because it's so beyond us, but it is absolutely not. And we just praise you for being our creator and uh, caring about us in the midst of great universe. Amen.